Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be analysing the results of last Saturday's New South Wales state election. My guest today is William Bow from The Poll Bludger. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. So we're recording this on Monday morning, and the uh, most of the seats have been decided in the New South Wales state election. Looks like Labor probably is on track for a small majority, with uh, the Liberal Party losing um, a number of seats to Labor, but also a small increase to the size of the crossbench with at least one independent winning a seat off the Liberals and a number of others still in the hunt. It was actually quite a large two-party preferred victory, but it's also the lowest primary vote ever recorded for a majority government in modern New South Wales history. So it's a bit of a contrast here. It was in some ways like the federal election, a decisive defeat of the coalition government but not an overwhelming victory for Labor. William, um, what's your takeaway? As you say, it's it's a sign of the times that the, the Labor have won a majority from, you know, what even 20 years ago would have been regarded as a very poor primary vote. So, you know, we've still got a majoritarian electoral system, but we don't have a majoritarian voting public anymore. So, you know, if the other side has got a low primary vote too, then the while the, the crossbench keeps getting bigger and bigger, the uh, hurdle you need to clear on that aggregate primary vote to get to a majority isn't all that high. Labor did it federally with less than a third of the vote. The Labor have done better at this election in terms of the primary vote than they did at the federal election. So now that we've been primed for those sorts of results, it, it's not that much of a surprise. But yeah, you know, historically speaking, 37% of the primary vote is, you know, not normally what you consider an emphatic electoral endorsement. Before we started recording, we were comparing uh, your uh, results system at Poll Bludger to the ABC and going through what the seats were that haven't been decided yet. There are 14 seats that are not entirely clear, although there's a couple of those which are pretty clear. Uh, of the remaining ones, Labor is on 45, the Coalition's on 25, Independents are on 7, Greens are on 2. Um, but in terms of the lead, I believe Labor is leading in four other seats. So they're leading in Kiama uh, by, by a substantial margin. I could You could argue that you might call Kiama pretty soon. Miranda, very slim. Ride, slightly better for Labor. Terrigal, slightly better again. And then there's a series of seats that are Liberal leading and um, the Greens are ahead in Balmain and Independents are ahead in Wallandilly and Pittwater, but trailing in Willoughby. So overall, you know, you can't quite rule out a Labor minority, but if they get to Kiama, which it seems like they will, they're only one seat short, they're leading in three others, and there's another handful of seats where they're narrowly trailing. So they should, in the course of things, probably um, drop over the line. Everything would need to go wrong for them for this point for that not to happen. I think, as you say, Kayama is pretty much home and hose. I think possibly my, my system's probably being cautious because we've got a Labor versus Independent contest there, which can't be matched with the situation at the previous election where it was a, well, you know, obviously it's usually a typical Labor versus Liberal contest. Um, yeah, a, a number of those seats could fall either way. Uh, you know, Terrigal, Ride, uh, Oatley, uh, what else have I got? Holsworthy, probably Labor are more likely or not to win all of them. 
Uh, Goulburn, I've got them ahead, but I think that's a bit dubious. I'm not confident in saying that Labor are actually ahead in Goulburn. They're not ahead on the raw vote. That's a projection that I've got. And there's quite a bit of data missing in Goulburn. I think people who have looked at the numbers there more closely than I have think that that's more likely to stay with the Liberals. But nonetheless, I don't know how many other sets I mentioned there, four or five, where probably Labor's chance of winning is over 50%. So it's mathematically possible that they don't make it to a majority. But, you know, that the, the probability is very low. Let's talk for a sec about the crossbench. Um Greens in Balmain did suffer a large swing. Interestingly, it was mostly just a 2PP swing. The Labor primary climbed substantially. The Greens primary only dropped by a bit. But there was a number of other small left minor parties that dropped out of the race and it kind of consolidated behind Labor. And as we all know, optional preferential voting, uh, you don't get a lot of preferences, um, but those primary votes are extra valuable. Um so that looks like that's going to the Greens. The six sitting independents have all been easily re-elected. None of them came close to losing their seats. Uh, and then you've also got Michael Regan in Wakehurst. He's in two to three others possibility. So we're talking about, if you say Balmain's safe, that's 10 seats for the crossbench. Upper limit at the moment is 13. Again, if you rule out Gareth Ward in Kiama, which I think we probably can at this point. So you're talking about, 10 to 13 seats for the crossbench, which is huge. I mean, the nine we had the last election was big. Back in the kind of the car era when there were a lot of rural independents, there was usually six on the crossbench. Um, so it is making a big difference. And I think that's one of the things that I wonder a bit about how much there's going to be chatter about, oh, a hung parliament was predicted again. I mean, I always said it was possible Labor was going to get across the line, but one of the things that did change was that last news poll that came out had Labor on 54.5% 2PP, which is almost exactly where they are right now, whereas all the other polls had them a couple of points less, 52 53%. And I think looking at these results, you have to say, if Labor had gotten a point and a half less of the 2PP, they would have absolutely fallen short of a majority. Yeah, there's a sort of couple of points we can elaborate on there. I'll sort of start with the last one which is that um, for the, you know, throughout the campaign, the sort of the, the media's uh, general expectation was that we were looking at minority government. And uh, they've copped, I think, a little bit more flack, at least on Twitter, for what that's worth for doing that than is entirely deserved, because all of the polling during the campaign did show exactly that, as you say. You know, for all that that two-party preferred win for Labor is quite emphatic, given the size of the crossbench, it wouldn't have had to have been much less for them to have not made it there. And every poll during the campaign did indeed show that they weren't, you know, at the two-party preferred level where they probably needed to be in order to get to 47 seats. So the question is, you know, was there a late swing to Labor? I think that the consensus among people who had access to internal polling was that there was indeed a late swing to Labor. At the end of the campaign, Dominic Perrottet was campaigning in seats like South Coast and Camden, where he wasn't campaigning earlier in the race. And I think that late, late deciding voters did genuinely swing to Labor and the Liberal Party's internal research at least was picking that up and News Poll picked that up. 
I think, you know, it could be that, you know, News Poll just got lucky with their late campaign poll and their end of campaign poll and the, the other polling generally wasn't picking up the extent of how well Labor was doing. But I think more likely there was indeed a late swing to Labor at the end and that's what, what gave them over the line. And News Poll have absolutely nailed it in terms of where the party vote shares are as we speak. If they don't change much, then News Poll have, you know, a back to their glory days for a sort of second election in a row. Because in Victoria, they nailed it as well. You mentioned Balmain, which is, you know, interesting because as you pointed out at the time, this is the first occasion we've had where a sitting Greens member has retired. So I, I think to this point, we've never quite known what would happen if, uh, you know, you, you had a situation where a, a green seat didn't have a defending incumbent. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the verdict is in, it, it's going to be a challenge for them. It is an opportunity for Labor to get back those sorts of seats. I think, you know, the sort of seats we're talking about, Balmain, Newtown, the, the inner city seats of Melbourne, uh, you know, always going to be difficult for Labor to win. But when a Greens member retires, that is an opportunity for them. Labor recognised that in Balmain. They hit Balmain pretty hard. But I don't think they've made it. I don't think anyone's system is calling it for them. Maybe if sort of the Greens traditionally don't do well on postals. So, uh, you know, I don't think the Greens can be completely confident and, and, until sort of postals are in. But uh, I think they are more likely to hold on in Balmain, but in the face of a very solid swing to Labor, because, you know, Labor made sure they had a good candidate, made sure they went around a well-resourced campaign and, uh, you know, did as well as they're ever going to do in Balmain going forward. Now, uh, it, it wasn't quite enough, but, you know, that, that, that was an, a, an interesting, you know, case study for what happens when, you know, the Greens do lose an incumbent. It's interesting to think about the asymmetrical resources of the Labor Party and the Greens uh, because obviously the Labor Party has a lot more money, it has a lot more people, it, and it can put that into a place, but they also are trying to win government and they have a lot of other marginal seats to focus on, right? So if they throw a great deal of resources at Balmain, those are resources they can't deploy in marginal seat contests against the coalition. Greens, on the other hand, have less resources, but also have less places to put it, and they can really focus their attention on one seat if they really need to. And one of the things that's interesting here is Labor kind of pinned the Greens down in Balmain. I don't think they were going to win any other seats in the inner west, and I think I don't think they were going to win any seats in Lismore or whatever. But this was very much a defensive election for the Greens when it comes to the lower house, and part of that was. You know they they were in danger, and I think probably the the conclusion here is it's entirely possible Labor could have won this seat if the circumstances were different. All that resource got put in, and I probably expect next time it'll be a little bit less intense, and the Greens will probably hold on, and then next time it'll be a bit less intense again, unless something really changes in that Greens Labor dynamic. I'm sort of wondering if at state level there are any what opportunities there are, if any, for the Greens to expand their existing footprint. Like if they did feel that they could take Balmain, you know, if they, you know, had the Jamie Parker was running there again and they were confident that he didn't, you know, need to have all of their resources plunged into Balmain, would there have been other seats that the Greens would have been targeting instead in the hope of winning from Labor? Would they have been looking at Summer Hill maybe? I'm not sort of close enough to the situation 
But I mean, what's your feeling on that? Is all of their opportunity concentrated in the seats they've already got? A bit, yeah. I mean, they mentioned two regional seats they were interested in. Lismore and South Coast. Yeah, I mean, maybe when Janelle Safin goes in Lismore because they, the Greens almost won Lismore in 2015, was it? The, the when there was the uh, coal seam gas was a huge issue. That when they won Ballina, they almost won Lismore as well. But I think Lismore, you know, is is a seat where you know Janelle Safin is clearly very popular. And, uh, you know, she absolutely smashed it at this election. And, you know, she has a very long established, you know, connection with that electorate. If you take her out of the equation, then, yeah, I'm sure Lismore becomes a very interesting seat. Is it a three-way contest? Have the Nationals sort of become uncompetitive in Lismore? Is it a Labor versus Greens contest going forward? Yeah, Safin has locked it down, and I think she's kind of become a bit of a the state equivalent of like a Tanya Plibersek or Anthony Albanese, who are such a strong local member in that area that underlying conditions might be good for the Greens, but they can't be competitive there. Like I think Lismore's off the table while she's there. Um, what's interesting is the Greens also came close to getting to the two candidate preferred count in 2019, and on the redistribution they would have. Um, they would have lost the seat, though, because there was a gap between the Labor preference flow and the Greens preference flow. That meant Labor was winning the seat and the Greens were losing the seat in a Nationals race. I think probably that there's been a big swing also to the left, not just... Like, Safin hasn't just solidified herself against the Greens, but she's also solidified herself on a two-party preferred basis. We'll see whether that lasts. The other seat to mention was South Coast. They talked a bit about that. I'd actually been asked, I don't know, probably a year ago about South Coast by someone in the local area going, could this be a thing? And my first instinct was no, and that's what turned out to happen. Um, but I've also, that was my feeling about Ballina in 2014 as well, was the the Greens vote wasn't high enough. And so I've been a little bit more humble about this stuff. I've gone, weird things can happen. The Greens had a strong candidate who's the directly elected mayor who's won the mayoralty twice. But the thing is, she's won it largely because the right in that local council has been badly divided. The first time, the right wing basically split into two factions and one of them preferenced her and she overtook the other one and won. The second time around, there was at least five right-wing mayoral candidates and no, basically no other left-wing candidates. A former Greens councillor was an anti-vaxxer, but that was about it. And so there was no Labor candidate. Labor backed her for mayor. And her final preference count was 37% of the primary vote, was the vote that she ended up winning on because so many votes exhausted. And then four-member wards meant Labor and the Greens each won a member in each each ward and got a majority on the council, even though the right had a clear majority of the vote. Anyway, so my takeaway from that was I was like, I think the Greens vote is too low, but they're running a strong candidate. Maybe they'll do well. In in the end, what happened was there was a very strong swing to the left in South Coast, but it all stayed behind Labor. People saw it as a clear Labor liberal contest. Maybe there's some people who like Finley, might have voted for her, but were like, this is a state election. This is Labor liberal didn't believe the Greens had a chance in it, maybe correctly. And uh, that one fizzled too, and I don't think we'll see people talking about South Coast again. Beyond that, though, you have a bunch of seats where it's like part of the seat is good for the Greens, but you then leave Greens heartland. Heffron is a bit of a seat of two halves where the northern half of the seat's really good for the Greens, and like bits of that seat used to be 
good areas for the greens in like Newtown. But then the southern half is basically out of suburbia, uh, parachuted into the inner city. Uh, Summer Hills are more of a gradual gradient, but it's the it's the more labour-friendly part of Grainler. I think the greens are picking up ground there. There's definitely a gentrification wave that is pushing some of the greens support out further. People I know who the equivalent people 20 years ago would have lived in Newtown now live in Ashfield. Um, but I think they're a while away from any of those. There's no real obvious picks for a fourth green seat. I understand the kind of sociology of Melbourne a lot better than I do Sydney. But everything you say applies in both cities. You know, the as you say, the, the kind of uh, curtain that separates working class Labor voting from sort of Bohemian and the city Greens voting is expanding further away and progressively bringing new seats onto the table, particularly at state level. But there's always seats that are kind of there at the edge where, you know, the, the Greens are, you know, more than competitive at the end of the electorate that's close in the city. But by the time you move away from the city at the other end of the electorate, Labor is still too strong there. I think, you, you know, seats like Preston is, an, is a Melbourne equivalent of the, the phenomenon that you're discussing in, in Sydney. Yeah, and they're strong enough to make it to the 2PP, but they're not competitive. Maybe in 10 years they're going to be competitive in Heffron and Summerhill, but at the moment they're not there. And, you know, South Coast, I guess... The, the situation there is near the coast, the Greens are good. Further inland, it's too conservative and, you know, that they don't get it, the critical mass there. And I, I think going forward, that's, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not intimately acquainted with the area, but, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, future potential for the Greens to, you know, win new seats, we are still talking about inner city Sydney and at the moment the seats just aren't there. What would you think if Alex Greenwich left the scene? What would what do you imagine would happen in Sydney? The thing is there is there is a clover machine in that area. There's a lot of people who are just used to voting for independence and that wouldn't go away. And so I think you've got to also factor that in. But if that all vanished and those people went off to vote for other people, I think the Greens would be, if not quite as strong as they are in Newtown and Balmain, like not far off. It's now a Greenwich versus Labor contest, but I think probably on the current vote without Greenwich around, I think it probably would be Labor versus Greens. What's going to be really interesting is normally when a first-generation independent retires, they retire and they're gone. They've moved on from politics. They might live in the area. They might not have died, but they're, they're not involved in politics anymore. Clovermore left, but she's still the leader of that faction. She's still on the council, running things, kind of involved everywhere. And still, I don't know what Greenwich looks like if Clover's not around. I think at some point, Clovermore will retire as Lord Mayor of Sydney. She'll try and hand over to someone else in their faction Maybe they'll get elected. Maybe they won't. I suspect it kind of could be the kind of thing where they win the mayoralty, but not in such a dominant role that Clover has always had it. Um, and then what happens then? Like these local parties don't tend to last forever. You know, you don't hear about them that have been around 50 years. The ones that were really prominent in the 90s or the early 2000s have mostly fallen away, Lake Macquarie, Manly, places like that. Um, now we see Fairfield and Wakehurst and places like that being more interesting. Rob Oakeshott succeeded in passing Port Macquarie onto an independent for one term, 
but that, that's sort of the only example I can think of. And, you know, I, I think this it is a special circumstance what, you know, Clover Moore has been able to accomplish on her patch. I think maybe it's specific to a CBD environment. It's of, you know, technical interest to note that the Electoral Commission have pulled their two-candidate preferred count in Sydney, which was initially between Alex Greenwich and the Liberal. It turns out that they've determined that the Liberal's going to run third and it will be Alex Greenwich versus Labor. Completely academic, Alex Greenwich has very easily been uh, re-elected. But, you know, if you had a straightforward two-party preferred contest there, you know, Sydney would be a very tight seat, it seems. What, what would that mean for the Greens if they were in there? You know, uh, time will tell. But, you know, it, it would be interesting to to know what would happen if that entire Clovermore independent um, factor was taken out of the equation. You know, I, I imagine you'd get a competitive three-way contest between Liberal Labor and the Greens. We don't actually have a Labor Liberal 2PP yet, of course. Last election, the Liberals won the 2PP in Sydney narrowly. But when the redistribution was calculated, it became a Labor 2PP because it moved from Paddington and it gained areas from Newtown, very strong areas for Jenny Leong, and that um, strengthened the Labor hand in the area relative to the Liberals. But it's also a seat where there's this huge number of progressive votes in the upper house. And a lot of those people appear to vote for Greenwich and then don't bother preferencing because, like, he's going to get elected. Why bother? I think quite a lot of those people would be Labor preferences at the very least if it was a Labor-Liberal contest. So I think preferencing behaviour would also be very different. So you can't really rely on just looking at those. But it was interesting. Clover Moore referred to it being a notionally blue seat, kind of felt like she was preparing the ground for Greenwich to possibly back the coalition, which I think would have been a mistake, but ended up um, not being relevant. That's an interesting point you make about Greenwich's exhaustion. Probably it's more of a left-leaning seat than I just indicated in saying that it's a line ball sort of seat. You know, it's a good point. You know, I think the upper house numbers are probably a better guide and based on what you're saying, it is a left-leaning seat. And uh, yeah, undoubtedly what you're saying about Clovermore is correct. If not in terms of preparing to support a Liberal government, then at least to strengthen Greenwich's hand in the negotiations by at least making both parties think he might jump either way. And, uh, you know, that, that that would have been tactically sound. But, yeah, I, I suspect that you're right and that it would take, a, you know, a, a Liberal landslide to make the Liberals competitive in the seat of Sydney. It might be the kind of one, though, where the Liberals are strong enough to get in the top two, though, and thus it turns into a which of the two progressive parties makes it to the top two. Anyway, all this is academic. Why don't we talk quickly about the Legislative Council? So the state of play in the upper house before this election, the last two elections produced 10 left-wing members and 11 right-wing members for a total of 22 to 20. What's happened right now is it looks like the left has won at least 11, so that's a change of one. And the last seat is a very close race between the coalition's seventh candidate and the Animal Justice Party. If Animal Justice can pull that off, there'll be a Labor Greens Animal Justice Legalised Cannabis majority in the Legislative Council. It also looks like after a bit of a false alarm in 2019, the Liberal Democrats may have finally gotten their way into state parliament for the first time. And of course, Fred Nile, he technically ran, not a single one of his votes has been counted yet because he didn't get a box above the line. But after 42 years in parliament, Fred Nile's on his way out. 
as you say, it's going to be very exciting, I think, to follow the, the late count there because, you know, as you say, we're, we're either looking at a left-right 21-all balance if the seventh coalition candidate wins that final seat. Otherwise, animal justice turn it into 22 left, 20 right. This is a bit crude, whacking everyone into a left or right box. I'd be interested in, to know what you think about that. Legalised cannabis look like they're winning a seat. Um, I, I think there might be some people out there who would sort of say that this is a sort of libertarian issue. And, uh, you know, Jeremy Buckingham would be the MP, an ex-Green, obviously. So uh, notwithstanding the, the difficulties he had with the Greens, I, I think you'd have to align him as pretty clearly part of the left. I don't know, do, do you have any sense that anyone in there is a sort of borderline case and isn't that easy to put into a, a, a Labor-leaning left box or a Liberal-leaning right box? I think now that I think it through, everyone there probably is easily categorisable as one or the other, in which case it becomes very consequentially wins that final seat. We will have a lot of issues that do divide neatly on the left to right lines. And uh, whoever it is that wins this final seat, you know, becomes the, the deciding factor in these sorts of issues. There are obviously messy complications and it's not as simple as that. That's kind of a first stage that I look at. Well, let's start with the shooters, fishers and farmers. They are a party that Labor has gotten along with quite well, but I think Labor would find it hard to get the shooters while they're also getting the Greens and animal justice, both of which are parties that are kind of anti-shooters parties. So I think while Labor could work with either of them, it's quite hard for Labor to work with both, and the numbers are that they would need both. Uh, and if animal justice doesn't pick up that seat, maybe they could leave animal justice off and just work with shooters, Greens, and legalised cannabis. But even the shooters and the Greens, it's hard to make that work. could happen. I'm sure it will happen sometimes. It's just a bit more complicated. Uh, and if Labor was stronger, I think you could see situations where Labor would go, sorry, Greens, we don't need you. We're going to go work with the shooters, the Lib Dems, in a way that the like the Carr government, the Yemen government would work with Fred Nile and the shooters back in the day. I think it's harder for them to do that with One Nation, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute, One Nation's performance. Um, Jeremy Buckingham is very interesting. I say this as someone who years ago was involved in the Greens and knew Jeremy. Um, he went out in a way that, a lot of people were unhappy with him in the Greens, and I don't just think it was the people who had been his opponents. He kind of went out tearing up his Greens membership and give you know yelling names about them all and all that kind of stuff. I think he's still mostly broadly of the left, but he's a maverick. He likes to present himself as a maverick. He would get his photo taken with Alan Jones. Um, you know, this this is his style. He likes to present himself this way. He's got a bit of a Bobcatter vibe, even if actually his politics is quite different. Um, and I'm sure he will like to present himself that way and make friends on both sides of the aisle. I think he's one of those kinds of people. Everyone has them. A person who walks in the room and says something totally innocent and you have such a history with them and they drive you nuts that you, your brain just explodes and you can't think rationally. And I think Buckingham brings that out in Green's people that uh, they have a history with him and they will take what he says the wrong way and there will be problems and that'll be messy. Uh, and it might be sometimes up to Labor to try and get them all to get along, actually, when Labor needs their votes. It's but, sort of interesting to compare him with John Ruddock, who looks like he's going to be entering Parliament with the Liberal Democrats, except that, whereas, I mean, this is obviously a very big difference, whereas Jeremy Buckingham is, you know, not 
uh, you know, more of a centrist than the, the Greens were. Uh, it's the opposite with John Ruddick. John Ruddick's quite the ideological purist who wasn't who left the Liberal Party for that reason. But uh, you know, he he was always a kind of maverick within the Liberal Party. Yeah, on a personal level, but uh, yeah, not in a way that there's any doubt as to whether he's going to belong on the left or the right side of the aisle. Let's talk about One Nation for a minute. It looks like overall in the lower house seats, they it's hard to compare because they didn't run in that many seats, frankly, and they ran in some different seats. Overall, their vote looks roughly even. I think we will find there's a few seats where their exhaustion rate has really hurt the coalition. Camden, for example, they polled 14%. Again, they polled about that last time, but it wasn't as competitive then. But I think it could, we've, we might find it really hurts. This is going to be one of those first elections where optional preferential voting is hurting different major parties in different areas. Uh, in the upper house, though, look, they're, they're not, they're on about 1.2 quotas. I think they might end up on 1.3 quotas. I just don't think it's enough for them to win a second seat. Um, and they won two last time. So it is backwards in a sense, even though they will have. A bigger group, they remain the only minor party outside the Greens to have managed to get a second person elected. And Mark Latham will have that empty seat that he was elected to four years ago that he's going to have the choice about who to fill it with. Uh, interestingly, something I did last night was I calculated the number of men and women in the upper house, and there will be 21 men and 20 women, and it'll be up to Mark Latham about whether uh, he brings women up to 50-50 parity in the upper house if he gives the seat to Tanya Mealuk. Or maybe he could give it to a bloke and prevent that from happening. So um, I I feel like Mark Latham's politics often are motivated by pissing people off and um, annoying people that he doesn't like. So watch that space. One Nation were kind of getting their tyres blown up during the campaign. There was, and it worked on me, you know, there was an expectation that the One, one Nation were, you know, going to improve on their performance in 2019. Uh, I I felt that you know Mark Latham is good at maintaining the, the party's profile in a way that its state representatives have tended not to be uh, in various places around the country. You know he's you know a, a very high profile figure who commands attention. He's got uh, political smarts. You know I maybe without him on on the scene. You know. It wouldn't have occurred to them to do what he did, which is to technically relinquish his existing upper house seat so he could be on the top of the ticket. He could be at at the the, the centre of the campaign. His high profile could be used by the party at the election. And uh, I I think if you'd asked me a week ago, I'd have said that if they won two seats in 2019 in the upper house, they'd probably win two seats again at this election. But fairly clearly that hasn't happened. Um, they have held their ground, I think, in the lower house seats in which they ran. They doubled their vote in Matt Keane's seat, which was interesting, not off a very high base though. But on the whole, you know, it was a disappointing night for One Nation. They were expecting more. And there was this sort of narrative that Matt Keane has so angered the kind of right wing base of the Liberal Party that they were going to defect to One Nation to send a signal to them that, you know, in in the same way that a lot of people on the left will vote for the Greens, that you need to, you know, abandon concern for climate change, you need to be the anti-woke party, all the the sort of things that sort of Sky News and Sky News watches are, are, are close to their hearts. 
on the whole, it just doesn't seem that that's happened. I guess what happened in the upper house was that they had too much competition from other parties of the right and that drained away from them. Uh, maybe you have some thoughts on that. But, you know, I was surprised that they went backwards in the upper house, which clearly they have. So, uh, you know, that whole, you know, narrative that, you know, that, 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 the Rowan Deans of the world were pushing that you know the, the the reason the Liberals did badly was because that they'd moved far to the left. Uh, that's very thin rule. I don't think people who want to push that line really have anything to work with. It will be interesting both on a statewide basis, probably using upper house data and in key seats, looking at what happened. We know the Liberal vote obviously went down. Labor vote went up, but overall the total major vote went down. What happened to the overall pool of minor right votes? Because Liberal Democrats clearly have improved. They got Liberal preferences, They all that stuff. But the Christian Democratic Party has vanished. The shooters appear to have gone backwards a bit. One Nation's gone backwards a bit. Has the pool overall increased? Maybe the right way to look at it is that that sort of second right-wing minor party seat was won by the Liberal Democrats rather than the second One Nation and what happened in 2019 was that, you know, the One Nation did a, a, a better job or the circumstances were, were, were easier for them to have that vote consolidate by them and win that sort of second seat that's available there to a, to a right-wing minor party. One of the things about legislative council, it gets talked a little bit about as being a bit chaotic, but in some ways it's super predictable, right? Like, you get 4.5% of the vote, you get a seat. You get another 45 you get a seat. Around the edges, it's it's a bit variable. But, you know, you do not – a 4.5% swing in the lower house, like, sweeps a whole bunch of seats through. In the upper house, it just ticks one seat over. You know, like, we're talking about a two-seat change in the upper house, which is quite a large swing. And likewise, the number of seats for the minor left, the number of seats for the minor right has just gradually ticked up since that first post-group voting ticket election 2003. It was two left, two right. 2007, two left, two right. 2011, three left, two right. And three in 2015, you know, it wasn't a third green, but it was animal justice. In 2019, the left gets three again, and now the right gets three. You know, one nation come in. Instead of one Christian Democrat, you get two One Nation. And now we're looking at 3-3 or maybe even 4-3 if the Animal Justice Party win. Um, And so it's actually been the growth has been super linear. You know, every two or three elections, each side of politics, the minor parties on that side pick up one extra seat. And then there's a bit of jostling about who gets those seats within that block. But the size of those blocks is increasing like almost in this super predictable, straightforward, linear way. Yeah, you know, which is probably a, a interesting advertisement for proportional representation that, you know, you, you don't have, you know, electoral convulsions going on based on what in the cosmic scheme of things are, are pretty minor, or, you know, shifts in major party support. Where you know, which is certainly you know, like Western Australia, you know, once you fall below a certain point, you're winning absolutely nothing at all, and the thirty percent of people who voted for you are emerging empty-handed. Whereas what the 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 progression that you just described in the upper house, you know, is an accurate reflection of where the voters have been headed. So uh, sort of speaking of electoral systems, I'm sort of wondering if there's been any suggestion that uh, a Labor government might knock optional preferential voting on the head as they did in Queensland and the Northern Territory. 
it was, you know, Labor governments that introduced optional preferential voting, imagining that this would split Liberal and Nationals. Um, and then the rise of the Greens changed the, uh, the, the dynamic on that and made it a, a, a problem advantageous for Labor to have compulsory preferential voting. So they said, we, we don't want to lose Greens' preferences. So, you know, we're going to pretend to be have some high-minded idealistic reason for abolishing optional preferential voting. I have not heard the slightest suggestion of this. Well, there has been some suggestions. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe you could elaborate on that because I'd be sort of interested to know. And would it get through the upper house? Well, it's it's not whether it gets through the upper house. It's whether it gets through a referendum, uh, because Jackie Scrooby, the independent candidate for Pittwater, who currently is in a very tight contest to win, said we should go to compulsory preferential voting. And at the time, I actually did a thread, quite a long one. I'll link to it here. About twenty-five tweets going through the history of how New South Wales has made it harder to change the voting system by embedding things in the constitution. When Neville ran, uh, changed the electoral system before the 81 election, he brought in new redistribution rules, uh, optional preferential voting. There was a couple of other things as well. He embedded compulsory voting in the constitution. He then passed another clause in the constitution, not with a referendum, mind you, that said, if you want to change any of this, you need a referendum. Uh, which seems to anyone on the outside, they're like, that's weird. How can you require a referendum to change something that didn't require a referendum in the first place? But New South Wales has a history of this. The the nationalist government in the late 20s did it to protect the upper house. They did the same trick. And then when Jack Lang came back in, he tried to pass legislation repealing the clause that said you need a referendum to change this. And they repeal, repeal, appealed it all the way to the Privy Council who found, no, you're allowed to do that apparently under New South Wales constitutional law. It's perfectly fine to embed something in the constitution and bind the hands of future parliaments without being bound yourself. So as far as I can tell, it's constitutional to change optional preferential voting. You would need a statewide referendum, which I don't see is happening. I think, though, one of my arguments is what we should do as an intermediate step that probably could be constitutional is do some things uh, to encourage more preferencing, mark some things differently on the ballot, maybe ban those just vote one posters you see that encourage more preferencing without actually changing the underlying counting rules. You know, now that you've sort of reminded me that this would require a referendum, my feeling would be that that would be very hard to get up. And, you know, it would be easy to argue to the people of New South Wales that politicians are requiring you to choose between Labor and the Coalition when you don't want to. And uh, because it would be so difficult, I imagine that the government would leave that in the too hard basket, which disappoints me because from my perspective, it's very painful having to deal with optional preferential voting in one state only when I'm sort of setting up results reporting systems. Obviously, this is not a concern that should keep anyone else awake at night. But, um, you know, I, I, I was sort of hoping your answer to that would be absolutely. The Labor government might pull a swifty like they did in Queensland, where at two o'clock in the morning, I put it through an unheralded legislative change that abolished optional preferential voting about five or six years ago. So yeah, on that basis, I don't think that would happen. Uh, interesting that you mentioned that you could ban the Just Vote One posters that we saw, which generated a lot of controversy because I think the Liberal Party were repeating their dastardly trick of the 2019 federal election, where they were trying to make them look like electoral commission posters. 
Um, I'm not because, like, clearly on that occasion where the controversy was that in Melbourne the Liberals were putting up Chinese language signs in that very distinctive purple and white Australian electoral code colour scheme. I don't. I gather that the colour scheme that they were using in on these Just Vote One posters where they ferreted away a little Liberal Party logo at the bottom of right and they were sort of accused of putting them behind bushes so that you couldn't see the Liberal Party logo, which was a legal requirement, and uh, trying to deceive voters coming into those uh, polling booths into thinking that, you know, just voting one wasn't some interested part of an actor trying to, you know, get you to do what they wanted you to do. This was an official electoral commission advertising campaign. I do wonder if crudely banning advocating just one vote, you know, would uh, have some sort of constitutional freedom of speech implication. Yeah, possible. I'm reminded of uh, Al, Al, the, the Langer controversy where... Uh, Albert or Alfred, the the, character, the fellow who got uh, con criminally convicted for recommending that people vote in such a way that their vote would have exhausted, but that was under a system where the uh, what he was advocating was exploiting a savings provision that was there to. Uh, ensure that people who made honest mistakes in filling out their ballot paper continued to have their vote counted. Whereas optional preferential voting the uh, you know, is a different circumstance in that the whole point of the system is that you can not have to choose between any you know, given set of candidates that you don't feel like making a decision between. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot there to think about, but based on what you've said, I imagine that optional preferential voting isn't going anywhere. Just before we're leaving now, I just want to report that uh, the Liberals have now won Willoughby as well. They uh, did well in a big pre-poll booth, um, trusting Anthony Green on Twitter here, that uh, it looks like Tim James has held on in Willoughby against independent Larissa Penn. So when we talked about the, the crossbench being 10 to 13 seats earlier, that's now 10 to 12. A little bit of breaking news for you. That will be old news by the time you listen to this podcast. So that's about it for this episode of the Tallyroom Podcast. Thank you, William, for joining me. Thank you very much. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroomatmastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. And I want to just say that we're about to go through a bit of a quiet period with elections. So if you like this work, please consider signing up. And William, you also have your own donation page as well if people want to support your work. Yes, indeed. Uh, I fear that Ben and I may have some lean months coming up. The uh, best we can hope for is more federal by-election, which may happen. But yes, it's we haven't got a major election until the Queensland state election in October 2024. So check out both of our websites if you'd like to support our work. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christa Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>